Remember to turn this on, right? There we go. <laughs> you know, we uh, we start a new chapter today, chapter two. Although that actually, in the original, there is no such thing as chapter divisions and verse divisions. And, um, you know, there's no break, really, between chapter one and chapter two. Paul wrote an epistle, he wrote a letter. Now, we, we did end chapter one last week, and after several weeks of study of that chapter one, we surely got the message of the indictment that comes from God upon all men. We got that message, right? And so after all of that, I think we probably would be hoping that we'd be able to get to the good news. That's really what we are looking forward to, right? How long can we take this torment that comes from the Word here, the character of the law? It's oppressive. So is our sin. And it reminds us of our sin against a holy God. Um, when is he going to give us some relief, though, here in, in Romans? Uh, as Paul wrote this, at the end of chapter 1, as ghastly as it was, you might think that today we might get that break. And uh, that good news is getting ready to come there. Uh, if you were hoping that, well, your hope is in vain. <laughs> Paul has not finished with us yet. And before we can get to the good news, we must go through this. And we must see the standard of God and how holy and righteous He really is. We never want to take Him for granted. We never want to take Him lightly. He is a serious God. And... You know, when you look at this text and really concentrate on it, if you're really being impressed upon in your heart by the Lord, if that happens, we see this indictment from God and we become persuaded persuaded for our need. We have a need every day. Not only a one-time need for salvation, but every day we need the Gospel. We need to see what He has done to poor wretches like us and brought us into the very family of God. This is an indictment, though, of uh, the very sinfulness of mankind. And so that's where the attention is directed to in the text. Of course, it will be to the Jews who would say, I saw your argument that you had for those Gentiles those wicked Gentiles, and then they take on their self-righteousness. And that's where we're at when we get into chapter 2. So let's read the text. Let's stand and read this precious Word of God out of one of the most favorite books of the Bible, Romans. What a pleasure it is to read from God's Word, isn't it? What a blessing. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, 
and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we tend to this portion of Scripture, we're humbled by it. May your words come upon us heavily to our ears, to our hearts, as we squirm beneath the warnings that you've given and from your law. These are the words that we hear. We pray that you would come and pierce our hardened hearts, that we would understand and embrace the truths of these words that we have looked at today and will look at. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. All right, we come to a, another dreadful text, but we rejoice in it. God knows exactly what He's doing when He does this. It's good for all of us. The chapter 2 here starts with the word therefore. It's interesting that He would start with the word therefore that starts a new chapter. <laughs> therefore. <coughs> How interesting that seems. It makes you wonder why anyone would start a chapter signifying from an argument to the conclusion. We had the argument build up and now we're at the conclusion. I hear it starts in chapter 2, but like I said, Paul didn't arrange these in chapters. They're not inspired, the chapter divisions and the, the verses. Every, the Word of God, every Word of God is inspired. Don't get nervous there. But I'm just saying it was many, many years later, many centuries later that really it uh, was divided up. And it's a good thing. It sure helps us, doesn't it? But sometimes the, those chapter divisions can, um, can 
can confuse somebody. It almost seems like a new chapter should start a new subject. But Paul goes right on to what he's going to conclude with. And that will take a little while too, but uh, it's appealing back to the previous chapter. And we see a blistering condemnation that has been put upon actually the pagans, all the Gentiles, all people. Uh, They're without excuse, of course. If you look in uh, verse 32 of Romans 1, it says, Although they know the ordinance of God, and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do those same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's where we left off. So these people even know that God exists, and they even know that He's given them a sense, a conscience of right and wrong. You'd say, well, it's to Christians, right? No. We're talking about pagan Gentiles that He has brought forth in the text from 118 through the rest of chapter 1. And that was really us. We were once there before we were brought to Christ. That was us. And we denied Him We suppressed the truth. We rejected Him. There is really a universal rejection of God Almighty. Chapter 1 has shown that. Everybody knows of God. They are without excuse. Everybody has had God shown to them through general revelation. Everybody. So, as we say here, we we look at this and we see that this condemnation is against the pagans of the world of the day, and so we come to this section. It's not only them, but the Jews. It takes in everyone, and we'll see that throughout chapter 2, especially of the Jews. Everybody knows of God. There's a universal rejection. People of sin, and then they encourage sin to others as they go to their spiritual death. That would be considered the argument. Chapter 1 is the argument. And it shows that they're all condemned. Chapter 2 is saying, okay, what is it then? What is the conclusion? He starts off with, therefore, you have no excuse. Nobody can ever have an excuse whether it be the Gentile who says, hey, I'm one of those that was out in the jungle and I never heard of anything like this. I never heard I never heard about God. I never heard about the Gospel. No missionaries. Nobody coming to teach me. No preachers. No teachers. And they would say, then we shouldn't be judged. And no, he's already shown that they are without excuse, aren't they? They have no excuse. He'd say, well, it's got to be some people that have excuse. No, no. It's been given to everybody. They have a law in their heart, as we'll be seeing here today. And he'll give that answer. What about that pagan that's out there in the desert, out in the wilderness, nobody ever got to? Uh, what we have here is you're inexcusable. Every one of you, you know the ordinance of God. You all do. So, what we have here is the hypocrisy of mankind's 
judgment upon others. Now we as Christians can be said of we're judging others when we say you are a sinner and you need Christ. Well, that sounds like judging. Well, it is because we're taking the judgment of God and not our own thinking, not our own judgments, but it's judgment of God. If they don't know Christ, then they're condemned to hell, right? I mean, Christianity is that narrow. It's that narrow. Humans wouldn't make it that narrow, but God does. But He gives everybody that call to repentance. It's all out there for the world. So... The Jew here would be judgmental. Yeah, we agree, Lord, condemn them. Get them all, wipe them all out, right? But, not only is this the Jew, it's the moralist. The one who looks good. He does good. Uh, at least according to what the world says. Is it really according to what God says, though, right? He does good works. He might even go to church, Sunday school, every Sunday. And yet, he might just be a moralist who is not really a Christian, even though he can profess that. It's called hypocrisy. Some people can say, well, it talked about homosexuality. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not a lesbian. I'm not into immoral sex outside of marriage. And that's what Romans 1 has been talked about. And then he says, I'll turn them over to a depraved mind. And I don't have a depraved mind. That's not me. I do all the things that I think I'm supposed to do. And I'm righteous. I'm okay. Well, here's the news that is given to them. You have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. You're condemned. You're all condemned. In Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. We know that. Uh, the thing is, they may know what the standard is. They may know that law. But the difference maker is, do they obey it? Do they live up to that standard? Without Christ, nobody lives up to that standard. Nobody ever has. Except one. Christ. He's perfect. No man would ever be able to stand up to that perfect law, would it? So by condemning others... When people judge others about their sin, you know what they're doing? They are showing they are aware of right and wrong thoughts and actions. They're aware of that, and you know what they do? They condemn themselves. Everybody's heard of this, right? When you point a finger to somebody, at somebody, what's pointing back at you? You've got four fingers pointing back at yourself, right? So we have to be very careful about that. We want to let the Word of God judge them. And yes, we do have to make judgments every day. We don't want to hang out and live and act like all the unbelieving pagans of the world, do we? We have to make decisions on you know, who we are going to uh, communicate with and, and be great friends with. We have to be very careful are they the people of God? If they're not, then they need the gospel. We have to make that kind of decision, don't we? Well, that person is from a cult, okay? They're not a, a Christian, uh, right? They're, let's say they're, uh, 
the Mormons, for instance. Uh, the Mormons would believe wrongly. They don't really trust in Christ as their ultimate sacrifice for sins. They trust in their works. So they are, they are moralists, but, and they make judgments on everybody, but that judgment has to be based upon truth. So we read there, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. We've spoken about that, right? For you who judge practice the same thing. You do the same thing they do, but you are pronouncing condemnation on them. You're doing it too. And as we go further into the text, we'll see what that means. They uh, practice those things. Here it says in verse 2, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. The judgment of God. And then he says, falls, rightly falls upon those. Rightly falls. The word for rightly there is kata alathan. It's according to truth. Judge but from God comes from God's truth. God is truth. It doesn't come from us, but it comes from God. Everything that God judges, it's according to His Word, and it's always right. Always. Uh, aren't you glad that we have absolute confidence that when God judges, it's always perfect? He has never made a mistake in judgment. He has brought upon wrath throughout the ages. He continues it in our time and it will continue in the future till one day we have glory with Him. There is judgment upon those ones who do not trust in Him. God's justice is perfect. Uh, and that's really, that makes us comfort. Knowing that our judgment of sins has been taken care of, we can count on Him that He can no longer judge us because of our sins and send us to hell. He cannot do that. Judgment is absolutely essential. Justice is absolutely essential. Now in the days that we live in, we know that the courts aren't always just. We have a system that is built upon that, and thank the Lord, it's a lot better than most nations of the world. But I'm sure there are very many of us that a lot of the times we're not confident about it. We're not running down saying, no, this whole system is corrupt. There are good judges, there are good lawyers, there are good prosecutors. But sometimes when you go into court, dealing either with a prosecutor or a lawyer, or how, you know, when you have lawyers pitted against each other, or you have people that are ordinary citizens that are also sitting out there as a jury, then also you hope that they are getting the right information. Maybe they do, and maybe they don't, or maybe they're swayed by their own thinking. And so therefore, we know that sometimes, I don't know, we had, there was, of course, the uh, court case that finally came to the conclusion this week, and it, it was good news for all those ones who believe in self-defense. 
and with all of the evidence that is brought forth, you can have better evidence coming from eyewitnesses and all the video that you could slow down and look at. And that's what the jury did. They took their time, they came up with the verdict, and they all said, not guilty. I was hoping that it would be, even with all that evidence, because all I want is justice. If it wasn't just what had been done, then we want it to be judged correctly, and people are sent to jail because those sentences are carried out and they're done correctly. But sometimes they're not. Or in any kind of case like that, we are at the mercy of a judge or a jury, and sometimes we may not be competent no matter how innocent one could be. Uh, God is a perfect judge. He is omniscient. He knows everything about everyone in that particular case. Everyone involved. He knows everything about them. Boy, that will give you confidence, won't it? He has perfect knowledge of the case. He is a righteous judge, and he will never take a bribe or be following the day of politics, and if it's a political maneuver and he knows that people could kill him or threaten him so he'll go along with the crowd, even though it wouldn't be right, he is always righteous. He's omnipotent because he will make sure that that case, that decision is carried out correctly. See, that's the nature of God. The whole nature of God is involved in being the judge. If he's a good God, he will never render a bad decision. Thank the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. Those who practice such things, it says, um, he says, you're guilty. Because even though it doesn't look like you practice those things, you're doing or thinking or actually doing behind the scenes what those other people out there are doing, you are practicing those same things. Uh, let's turn to Matthew 5, verse 20, the Sermon on the Mount. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That means your standard of righteousness has to even go beyond the best lawyers, scribes, Pharisees. It has to go beyond them because they are not righteous. You see, God is the only righteous one. He's the only perfect one. You have to exceed their righteousness. Now we go to verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you are good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. If we think terrible things about people, and we call them fools and we are angry at people with an unrighteous anger. God says, you're worthy of going to hell. Wow, really? Yeah, Jesus is saying this. This is the nice, gentle Jesus saying the nice, gentle, soft Sermon on the Mount. 
I don't think it's so soft, is it? Because it's going into the heart. The Jews didn't go around committing murder for the most part. Yeah, they, they did, but usually it was those bad guy pagan Gentiles who did that. We keep going and we look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's bad, isn't it? And the Jews would say, yeah, yeah, you're not to commit adultery. We know that's in the Ten Commandments. It's obvious. Everybody knows that. But he says to this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We have to be very careful about those lustful, adulterous thoughts. And they do condemn you, and you know it. You know it's wrong. And right before the Lord, you go ahead and think it anyway. And He says you're guilty. See, this is why this gets every person who's ever been born. Because they think these things and they dwell upon these things. We move on to verse 20. Did we do 28? Yeah, we did, didn't we? Chapter 15, first three verses. Jesus condemns everybody. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands and, and when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And he went and got them. Because it says also the Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and mother. And if you speak evil, a father or mother is to be put to death. See, a lot of them were being righteous before everybody. The scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the Sadducees. Honor your father and mother. Well, you see what? They weren't even helping their mother and fathers out. They were not doing the things that they should have been doing. Uh, and so, and they, or they would take their money and let them be the way that they are. You know, they let them die. They were dishonoring their mother and father. And so he really hits at what they were doing there all at the same time. They were looking so good, weren't they? Uh, these are the words of Jesus. They wrote in their traditions to make them look good and about washing their hands and eating bread. If you didn't do that, you'd be a sinner. Well, nowhere in the law is it talking about that. And then he really gets into the law. See, they made up things. Traditions that are brought into church that are very legalistic. Things that are in there that are not in Scripture. People follow those to the T, but when it comes into obedience of the Word of God, they don't do it. They don't obey it. That's their tradition. That's the church they grew up in. And so they do those things, those traditions. Jesus condemns that. He says, what I want is obedience. Practicing such things. Okay, verses 1 and 2. We said what? There is no excuse for anybody. Nobody has an excuse. When they come before the judgment seat, ultimately, at the great white throne judgment, there will be no excuse. They won't be able to say, but, but, 
I did this, I did that. You know, well, if they say that, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. I did all these things that were so Christian and so good. Get away from me, I don't know you. Now the next one is found in verse 3 and 4, and it's, there is no escape. There is no excuse, there is no escape. But do you suppose this, oh man, and whenever God calls somebody oh man, it's like oh man. <laughs> oh my. When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now that's interesting. Let's go back to verse 3. Uh, it's about escaping. They won't be able to come up with a way of an escape. Having some kind of lawyer who's really good at the law and coming in and bending it and making it say something different. Uh, how many of you here remember W.C. Fields? Anybody remember him? Goes back about a hundred years ago. <laughs> uh, and we did that. And I said a hundred years. I'm going, oh no, they're really thinking. <laughs> reruns. It was reruns. YouTube. W.C. Fields was, uh, anyway, he would be like a non-believer, right? I mean, obviously there were some things there that he just didn't, uh, we'll say, really trust God in. <laughs> Get the picture, right? Anyway, he's reading the Bible one day. He was reading the Bible one day. Believe that or not, W.C. Fields was. And somebody said, well, why are you reading that, W.C.? And he says, I'm looking for loopholes. There are no loopholes in the Word of God. No loopholes. There's no escape. It won't do any good to have the best lawyer that uh, can weasel you out of anything. There will be no escape from God. But Paul is really trying to make here a, a statement. And first of all, it's to the Jew. And he's thinking, okay, I know what the Jew's going to say. But we're Jews. And we're from the holy people of God. And all of us are going to heaven because we are that. Because of their relationship that they were with God. And he's saying, you're sadly mistaken. And that excuse is not going to fly. The moralist of our day would believe that he will escape the judgment whether he professes Christianity or not. But he's good. He thinks he's good. He's relatively good when he compares himself to others who've committed murders. Well, I'm not so bad. I haven't committed robbery. I haven't committed murder, right? We've all heard that. He's without excuse, right? That's the, that's the thought there. So, have we elaborated enough on that? Let's go to the next verse, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Do you think lightly of that? A judge of others becomes real self-confident. He becomes blind to God's truth. 
and all of His mercy that God continues to give the sinners. Do you know that God is giving mercy to all those wicked, iniquitous, sinful, disobedient people out in the world? Do you know that He is giving them mercy? Right now, He's giving them mercy. Because you see, there's no reason for them to continue on. But He allows them to keep on going. And so, he, it says here that he is rich in these three things. Kindness, tolerance, patience. He's rich in that, his goodness. Did you notice the stages here? It starts with a kindness or goodness. First, it's God's goodness, his kindness. And he preserves them daily. He provides for them the food, the water, clothes, shelter, rain, sunshine. All of those things are given to all of men, women, kids. Everybody is given a what is called a common grace. A mercy. He withholds His wrath. He could wipe them out right now. And He would be perfectly just in doing that. And He does do that. And most of the time He practices this. A kindness. And then the kindness goes to forbearance or tolerance. He tolerates all that's going on in the world today and what all it's done in the past. Finally, He does bring a judgment. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it through history. He finally judges that, doesn't He? All those nations, empires have come. They're gone. Here we are. It will continue. He withholds His wrath. To individuals, ultimately, He will withhold that wrath to the great white throne. In the same time, the wrath is already being done because we saw that in 1.18 through the rest of chapter 1, didn't we? The wrath is being put on them as He turns it over to their sin. And then thirdly, when they reject God's goodness and they reject God's forbearance or tolerance, they despise it as a matter of fact. When they despise all that, they now despise God's patience. And that means to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. waiting. They're vessels of wrath but He has patience upon them. The goodness of God, the forbearance of God, and the patience of God. It is because of His <clears throat> kindness and because of His tolerance and because of His patience as He is rich in all of those qualities or His nature God is doing that. They have ample opportunity to repent. He gives them day after day, year after year, decades after decades. That's what happens. Boy, God is not like what we would do. Strike one. Strike two, you're out. <laughs> I think a lot of us would be that way. I have a tendency to be that way. Give them one chance, two chances. Okay, you're out of here, right? 
We see God is much more than that. His patience is something that's really hard to understand because there should be no man here on earth. He should have wiped them all out if we really saw what and who we are. But God, being rich in His mercy, look at Acts 14, one book back, a few chapters back. Acts 14, 15 and 17, 15 through 17. Acts 14. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Turn from your idols and turn to the living God. And then it says, Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Turn to this Creator God, the one and only God. And, and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own way. Oh, that sounds like Romans 1. He let them do what they did and it ultimately went into the judgment of sin. They lived out that sinful kind of life and it kills them. And yet, He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God does that to everyone. What a good God. And they despise it. They despise those things. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Speaking of the very last days. 2 Peter 3, 9. How about God's patience? The Lord is not slow about His promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The message is repent. The book of Acts is a message of repentance, claiming or proclaiming to everyone to repent and turn to God. God's kindness leads to repentance. God is so good that He brings all these things. You know what it's about? To lead us to repentance. For without repentance, we will never trust in Christ. Without repentance, we will never be His. It's not a work, but it's a sign. It shows that one is a believer. He, he grants us repentance. Thank you, Lord, for giving us repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. About repentance. There is a fake repentance, and then there's a true repentance. People can be sorry because of the sins they did and feel guilty, and turn around the next day and do the same thing. The problem is, they didn't really repent, they didn't mean it, because they knew what they were going to do the next day. But because of the guilt that was weighing on them, they will say they, they, they really mean it and they think it, but they really don't. And he said, Paul knows that through God's Spirit as he writes this. Listen to this. 
I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. It's not so much being sorry about your sin to God, but being so sorry that you would repent, which means to turn the other way and go back and do what is right. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, that's what's right, isn't it? As long as we know what's right, what is the truth of God, the Word of God, it produces a repentance without regret. Leading to salvation, that's how we came to Christ. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves and what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. These people were actually innocent because they had a godly sorrow. And Paul commends them. And when so, you know, a mark of a Christian is that he continues to repent. He continues to confess. It's not a one-time thing. Even though the sins are forgiven one time and they don't need to be forgiven again in the sense that your sins are held against you. But there's an ongoing repentance and confession. Agreeing with God that we have sinned against Him. We are sorry. We repent and we desire not to do that again. That's a godly sorrow. God's justice has no escape. So, there is no excuse. No escape. And we pick up in verse 5 through 8 now. God's justice is according to our deeds. That sounds interesting, but we're saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves. That is very true. But also, works are involved. And that's what he's going to hit on now. And remember, Paul is one who really hits on grace. Matter of fact, that's really what this gospel is preached about. That's what Paul makes his point about. It's being saved by grace. But look what he does now. Because, see, the Jews took this matter of grace for granted. He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, will be wrath and indignation. There's the two kind. You only have two people in this world. The ones who trust in Christ and the ones who don't. That's all there are. There are no, you know, all the divisions that the world and the politicians and... Uh, the cultures coming up with it. There's one division after another. Every day you find out there's another division. And, you know, there are really only, there's only one division. Those who are His 
those who are not and ever will be. That's what he does. That's what he says right here. The ones who obey the truth, the ones who don't obey the truth. He said, boy, you're sounding like works here today, Dennis. Paul sounds like he's doing works, isn't he? Well, uh, yeah, 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 he is. But you're not saved by your works, but if you're a Christian, you will do works that are according to God's truth and righteousness. And you will want to do that. Well, here we go. According to deeds. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, uh, you're storing up wrath for yourself. I want to get to that just for a moment. Storing up. You know what the word there is? Thesaurus. Has anybody ever heard of the word thesaurus? It's close to a dictionary. It's a treasure of words. It's valuable. It's precious. And it really gets to the heart of these particular precious words. It's a thesaurus. It's a treasury. Actually, in this context, and this, uh, this meaning here of this word is a banking term. It means to deposit something. It means to bring something to uh, like a bank and deposit it there. And then to bring more and bringing there. It's depositing into the account. For in this case, in the text, for every sin committed, that's thought, word, and deed, it's all stored up. It's put into the bank. Or in our thought today, it's uh, put into the memory of the computer. It will, uh, it will be there. It's every sin is just added up. It's stored up. Thesaurus, you get the idea? It's banked there. Count on it. What an awful idea. <laughs> what an awful idea that's expressed here because the sinner is himself actually doing this. He's amassing horrible treasures for ultimately the judgment that's going to come against him. He's storing up his own sins. He doesn't want to remember those, but God always remembers those. He accumulates stock for the divine wrath. You get that? Wow. Are you thankful that you do not have to account for even those sins that you don't even know you do? There are sins that we do that Passes us. Now, other people might be differing with you. <laughs> we don't know. Sometimes we sin against somebody, we don't even know we did it. Has that ever happened to you? Well, sure, it does. And you don't even mean it. But, yeah, you probably kind of did, right? You go, oh, wish I would have said that. Wish I wouldn't have thought that. Whatever, you know. But there are a lot of things that we do that we think about and ponder on. And, um, you know, those things would be there. Wow, okay. Hoarding up treasure, wrath, goodness of God. If it's not leading somebody to repentance, then every second, every minute, every day, every month, every year, every decade, all of the sin that is there, they will be paying for that sin as it's stored up. And it'll take an eternity to ever pay for those sins. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. For what did it do? It bought and paid for our sins. Why would we want to do those sins then that we used to do and they are doing now? 
Why? Think about it, right? It says a stubborn. Do you have a stubborn heart? Do you have an unrepentant heart? Well, if you do, you're not a believer. Uh, this word is stubborn, is sclerosis. It, you know what sclerosis is? It's a hardening. It's a hardening. Uh, and eventually, that dam will burst. It's a great dam of God's long-suffering, His patience. Finally, the dam breaks. And the ultimate wrath comes. The day of wrath when God will reveal His righteous judgment. Uh, unrepentant. We know what that means. Uh, really, a Christian is repentant. Now, are there times that we don't repent? We should. Well, yes, obviously. And we still battle sin. I'm not trying to bring a guilt upon in that sense, but I am bringing also a guilt to us that we do need to feel. And yes, we should not be sinning against the Holy God. Well, we're still on the flesh, but that's never an excuse, is it? But David sinned, and he got away with it. Oh, did you read the rest of the story? He, he didn't get away with it, did he? No, he didn't. It was a travesty what happened to his family. It's a sad story. We, we were, fresh, were fresh off of that when we were in the second, first Second Samuel and First Kings and such as we go into there. And... You know, it's like, yeah, I think of that constantly. I think, you know, boy, it'd be awful easy just to take advantage of God. And just, but I'll tell you what, He will not let that go. Uh, it says here, those seeking for glory and honor and immortality, there will be eternal life. That's easy to understand. I'm going to move on. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, they live for their own lives. That's really what it's all about. It's pride itself. The sin of self is the worst there is because it's all about me. It's all about me. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. And that's, that's the thought here. Um, saving faith is always accompanied by obedience, isn't it? Um, look in 1 Corinthians 4-5. Even for believers, we have a judgment of our dealing with rewards. And 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. When he strips all the stuff away, then there will be pure gold left. And then he says, enter into my gates, right? And that, that's the kind of the idea, the thought there. 2 Corinthians 5.10 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be uh, recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's not talking about uh, believers and unbelievers. It's talking about believers. The judgment seat of Christ is the context there. Yes, there is a judgment seat of Christ. It's about the rewards. Anything that's not going to give glory to God, He's going to pitch out. Anything that does give Him glory, He will reward you. We all want those rewards. 
Saving faith is always accompanied by obedience. Accompanied by obedience. Saved by grace through faith, it's all an act of God. But also, as it says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he talks about our works. Our works follow our faith. Faith and works go together. You cannot have faith and not have works. They are there. Okay, we got another one. <coughs> Looks like a good time for a break. <coughs> this is choking me up, folks. <laughs> Thank you all for staying right with me. It's tough, isn't it? We go back to our Romans chapter 2. And you notice we're going through this rather rapidly compared to what we normally do. Normally we take about two or three verses, don't we? But it's all one context, so I decided to put this together in this way. This time, now, uh, we just uh, saw another way that God judges. Fourthly, starting at verse 9. God's justice has no partiality. That's really stripping and ripping right into the Jew. Because they thought if anybody's saved, it's us. We're all going into heaven. Because He chose us. And He says in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Look at this. Of the Jew first. And also of the Greek. Who does He judge first? The Jew. And the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first, to the Greek first. He judges the household of God first. And then He judges everybody else. Judges the Jews first and they are... It's like, yeah, but they are in a great position. They should be judged last. Right? You'd think. But, no, that's not the case. No one is going to escape the judgment. No one is going to get away from evil. We've seen that. All will receive affliction. We read that. Because of their evil, they will suffer distress, come so afflicted. Then the other ones will receive good, goodness from God, glory and honor, peace. Uh, the word for no partiality here is... There's a compound word for partiality, and one of them means face. And the other part of it means to take. It means to take at face value. Uh, when people look at a book, what's the first thing we do, even though we know the rule? Never judge a book by its cover. But if it really looks cool and it has a good title, it's, it, and it's over here setting is just a plain... Um, black book with red letters on it, or white letters, or vice versa, you go, oh, I like this pretty book here. <laughs> That's a great cover, and it's even leather. You would tend to choose that, wouldn't you? May not be very good at all. Maybe. Maybe it does. Well, in our culture, what do we do? We choose whatever looks better on the outside. We seek the favor of men. Uh, whether they be powerful, whether they be rich, or whether they be intelligent, 
or they're, you know, uh, maybe they're from such a, such a neighborhood or such and such a denomination. You go on and on and on, right? Uh, God doesn't do this. He's impartial. He won't. He will always judge accordingly with what is inside that person. The Jews have thought that they were going to be the first to receive salvation and the last to receive judgment. Uh, they didn't know that God is not partial. And so, really, He sees men through His own eyes. Because He's a holy God, He's a God of truth. And it cuts through. He does not see as man sees, does He? There's no partiality with God. He's no respecter of persons. And the man who has never read the law of God, the written law, God says that that man will die apart from the law. The Jew will be according to that law of God. But you see, that man that doesn't have the law of God actually does because it's written in the heart and he knows what's good and he knows what's bad. All the law can do is show people that. The law was never intended to save anybody. What is its job? To condemn. And whenever we see that we have been condemned, we should respond of saying, Oh my, I have a great need. It's condemning me to hell. I have a great need. The great need is the Savior who fulfilled the law perfectly. The man who does, who does not know the law of God is going to be judged by that law because we already read it. It said back in Romans 1 that, and although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they know that. Oh, man, He has just taken everybody and chopped them down all the way to the dirt. There's nothing left. Oh, Paul has more things to say, though. God's justice there is according to being impartial, right? And their works. We know about their works. Judged by the gospel, to their judge, their, to their ju- the judgments of their works, it's according to truth. Do their works come up to the demand that God has? Those who are hearers of the gospel and do it, as James says, James two twenty through twenty six. I'm not going to read there for lack of time, but you've always heard it. Be doers of the word. Uh, you're justified by works. You say, Paul's, Paul's different. Paul says you're justified by grace. Well, you're justified by grace and your grace will show your works. Mm-hmm. Grace is salvation. And he's not arguing with himself at all, even though it sounds like that right there. You're saved by your works. You're justified by your works. That's what James says. They're not differing at all. When you're saved, you will have that. There's a warning here. God's justice 
is according to man's opportunity. Verse 14 and 15. Um, by the way, did I read 12? For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I more or less commented on that already, right? For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. So there it is. Paul says that too. That's exactly what James says. They are not in argument with each other. They are complimenting each other. It says the doers of the law will be justified. They're justified because they're saved by God, and now their works will show that they are believers. Now, 14 and 15, this is man's opportunity. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately confusing or accusing, uh, yeah, or <laughs> else defending them. Yeah. The, yeah, your conscience can confuse you, uh, especially if you get hardened. And all of a sudden, the conscience doesn't even do its job anymore. It's becoming hardened. That's a very sad state to be. We're getting ready to wrap this up. Uh, it's already saying things that we've already said. They know the ordinance of God. It's already said that. And I know the question is, you, you know, people are going to say, and I've said this all through Romans 1 and 2, and here's where you answer them. Every man is condemned. Well, how can you say that when they never really had the privilege that we do here in America where somebody gave us the gospel? Uh, yeah, might be. Uh, we are going to be held even more responsible. Well, that's the thing. You see, they already know there's a God. They all know there's a God. They already know what's right and wrong. And that they do instinctively that. It's instinct. It's in their heart. It's an idea of right and wrong. They have a guilty conscience. They keep on doing it. Their own conscience has judged them that they are guilty before God. That's even a person that's never heard the Gospel, folks. Chapter 1 and 2 just rivet it there and people cannot ever say that excuse. Well, surely they'll go to heaven because they didn't know God. They didn't, you know, even though they say they didn't know God existed. Uh, one day this will be affirmed. We close this out, verse 16. God's justice includes the secret things. There's coming a day when the heart of each man will be exposed. God will judge the secrets of each man. If you're a Christian, you've been prejudged because your sins went to Him. On the cross... They've been judged. We need to confess. We need to repent of that for salvation for one time and constantly on, as we said. What Paul is doing here is the impending coming judgment. Flee from the wrath to come. Has he made a very good case so far? Has he made it very clear? Could someone say, yes, but Paul, I never heard the Gospel. I never knew there was a God. Paul says you're condemned. That's what Paul is doing. Yeah, but I went to church. Yeah, but did you trust in Christ? Did you repent of your sins? Did you trust in Him for your saving faith? Yeah, but I, I read the Bible sometimes. 
But did you trust in Christ as your only Savior and the only way to flee the wrath to come? He tells us the bad news. He tells us to embrace the good news of the Gospel. But here again, we're not finishing with the good news of the Gospel, but I am. But you see, there's motives behind men's actions. And you know in Hebrews 4.12, it talks about the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And He knows the intentions of our heart. He knows everything that's there. And that really humbles us, doesn't it? Because we know there's a lot of things there that shouldn't be there. Luke 8.17, I need to close this out, but Luke 8.17 is the last time we'll turn to another verse, okay? 8.17 For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. The lamp of God's truth. I'm so thankful for truth. At the same time, you realize that, wow, He exposes all that trash, doesn't He? All one's sins will be exposed by God. But I want to finish on this note. Redemption is a cover-up. And usually when you hear a cover-up, you go, uh-oh, Watergate, scandal, there's cover-ups everywhere. You know, politically cover-ups everywhere, everywhere. Cover-up. The divine cover-up is the robe of righteousness. I will put on His robe of righteousness. That song that we sing, the robe of righteousness, that comes right out of the Old Testament and Jeremiah and other passages. He puts the cloak on us. He sees us as being declared righteous. We are not righteous in and of ourselves but we are declared righteous by God because He sees the work that Christ did and He no longer sees the sin, but He sees the righteousness of His Son that's been put on us. Really, I have no right to do that to Paul here because he's not doing it there yet, is he? He's got more to say. But I have to put forth the gospel at the end of every message. We have been given the cloak. Our secrets are even covered up. But I will say, because of the text that we look at, it makes us tremble. Because we are looking at a holy God and the perfect demands of His justice, which no one can do. That's why Christ is our everything. I have a great need. Does this sin that we've been looking at for several weeks, does it make you realize I need the Gospel now more than ever? It should be. You say, oh, I'm already saved. I don't need the Gospel. No, no, no. You need the Gospel. Preach it every day to yourself. Who you were and who you are now. You've been adopted. You're a child of God. It was all the work of God who did that. Why? Why did He do it? I have no idea. I can just say it's because of His love. But God being rich in mercy, His love, His grace, 
He's a holy God. He is just. Thank you, Lord, for providing the escape that we have in Christ. Oh, great God. Thank you for this word that you've given this morning. May we truly take it and be one who is obedient to you, who desires to follow you in all your ways. Thank you for the peace and the joy that you give us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you for the patience that you have. You've even relayed that to us by the Spirit as it is a gift. It's a gift to God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those attributes that are yours, those are the kind of attributes that you've given us. May we put them on exhibit and on display for all the world to see so that they would desire your gospel for they have a great need. In Jesus' name, amen.